0: welcome to visionaries i'm your host jacob wolf a former espn award-winning investigative journalist and the ceo and founder of overcome on today's episode of visionaries we welcome on ben goldhaber one of the founding employees at twitch and now the co-founder of juked after being laid off from the company a few years ago ben set out on his own to create juked which started as a tv guide for the esports space for those maybe unfamiliar with esports, part of the biggest issue that exists is finding a cohesive schedule. Think about it like sports for a second. Every single sport has a different schedule, and while many people think about esports as a monolith, each one of them, be it League of Legends or Counter-Strike or Super Smash Brothers, they all have a big schedule that you have to look at to figure it out, and nobody really has been organizing that. So that was Juke's initial product statement, to create a TV guide-like directory for all these different esports events, directing you to the right place on Twitch or YouTube, and then offering you additional information, be it news aggregated from other websites or stats and scores all in one place. You'll hear Ben talk about that a little bit in this interview and how that product started to scale and grow month over month and get new engagement from the likes of Google and other places. But one of the biggest issues Juke had was getting retention, keeping people on the platform. It would get new users, those people would leave, and then more new users would come in. So as a result, earlier this year, they pivoted to a social media app and integrated a lot of the functionality that they had on the website, the scores, the stats, the data, into this social media app and essentially created a haven place for esports. But the biggest problem with Juke as you'll hear Ben discuss, and as you'll hear me a little bit critique, is how big is a market for an esports social media platform? Esports itself, despite some of the press releases you may have seen over the past few years, is quite narrow. And that presents a really unique issue. It's hard to engage gamers already, much less a smaller subsection of them, the ones that put the most time into this game. Before we dive into the inter- interview, I wanted to talk to Prame from my team who's been joining us the past few weeks to go through some of these interviews, listen back to them and give his thoughts. Prame, what did you think of our interview with Ben?
1: I mean, I think it's it's a hard listen for esports industry people. It it's always hard to to have a conversation with someone after the thing they've worked on for many years now has has failed. It's 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 going down. But like I I met Ben just as Juke started i had been on on a panel at dreamhack anaheim in like just before the pandemic like two weeks before everything shut down and it was very clear that like he he wanted to make sure that he was building something that was widely usable by by esports people but also his goal was to make it something that was accessible and useful for kind of non esports endemic people for for You're kind of lay gamers, but like we have so much data that shows that 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 concept wasn't going to work and it's not even necessarily gaming data to do anything like this. The immediate kind of hurdle he has to get over is, is someone going to download the app, make an account so that they can find things that they already potentially had an idea where they would find it? Are they going to add that level of of complexity to their to their like esports day-to-day? And esports people are lazy. We're I'm we're we're bad about about diversifying our content like this. We're we're not good at at adding things into our, our daily lives. So I had my questions about whether or not that was that was feasible. And then like just yet, either yesterday or the day before, we we get the new Deloitte numbers for the esports and gaming industry in Europe. And esports engagement has dropped by 50% in a year. We saw a massive spike in esports engagement at the start of pandemic. It maintained through 21. And then in 22, it seems to have dropped by 50%. If I saw that, and I saw what's happening to Juked, I, as if I was an investor, I would have deep concerns about the The ability to make a profitable, long-lasting, eSports-focused and eSports-centric business.
0: Well, and that's part of the problem, too, is, you know, we see this now in the cryptocurrency space where the hype that is around the actual industry, all the money that is being raised, and I'm not even just talking about Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX, which are the more recent example of that for all those who have been following that news. But, you know, in crypto, there's a long history, unfortunately, of people it capitalizing on this hype, running, raising venture capital, making themselves filthy rich, and then walking off into the sunset with very little consequences because that's just an expectation of the business. But a lot of those people had poor intentions. They yep. wanted to self-enrich. They did not want to build sustainable businesses. And why that relates to esports is I've seen as a reporter over the past eight years, much of the same. The fact that many of the people involved in eSports, I don't know if they started off ill-intentioned. but I do know that a lot of people put the skis before or put the sto- Stokes before the skis and were just very okay with continually bumping up numbers that financially made no sense. You know for people that aren't familiar with sort of venture capital and fundraising economics, you know you the general rule of thumb is to say that we make X number of dollars in any given year. And then we are, so we are worth Y number of dollars. And usually the difference between those is a multiple. You do some multiplication. And for like a tech company, something that truly has a piece of technology that itself is valuable, regardless of if the company survives or not, that number is usually 15 to 20X, right? That, But for things like media companies, it's usually 3X or 4X and probably even lower right now, considering that, you know, the economy is not in a very good position and people are clutching their money more closely. A lot of these esports teams, which are effectively media companies, and a lot of these esports businesses, which are effectively media companies, have gone out there and raised like they are tech companies and no one stopped themselves. And so between the engagement rates, between that bad behavior over an extended period of time, there are a lot of investors who see esports and it's an immediate red flag and they just want to walk away. And I can't blame them, even as somebody who is an entrepreneur in the gaming space more broadly.
1: And I think going back to to the crypto issue, one, let's just call it what it is. There's a lot of grifters in, in the crypto Web3 NFT space. A lot of people who who they basically just hit you with as much jargon as possible and be like, well, because of all of this, look how valuable this is. And and they're just expecting you not to understand what just happened. Um, a few things. One, we have a lot of crypto people in, in gaming. Uh, they've they've come over and, and they've tried doing the exact same thing. Two days ago, two, three days ago, 100 Thieves Gaming, uh, Web3 Gaming team, the leader of that team posted that in eight weeks, he and a team of three people have built a game that's supposed to be web 3 and decentralized, and anyone that knows anything about gaming, or game dev, or even economics, knows that that game's going to be shit. That sounds terrible. No one wants that. (laughs) But... (sighs) The issue is we are going to be hit by it. The... The reason I think a lot of gaming companies try to value themselves th- in the same way that tech companies do is because, in theory, the gaming company can, can or like the esports organization, can pull enough user data that that data is valuable. Like I think Juked was, was getting to a position where they did have the ability to, to pull relatively granular information about their user base, and that, that, that information is really valuable to advertisers the problem is they're they to my eye i think they're one of the only ones that was doing it for like a larger audience i mean we have these kind of smaller very specific groups like c9 stratus and i think team liquid plus or whatever it is where i think those those teams can can be pulling information about their users but that user base is going to be very specific to that team juked could have done it with more and i think that that part of that tech would have been extremely valuable in, in a couple of years, especially as we get past more of this, frankly, bullshit around people coming in and saying, this is what our value is. Newzu shows up and says, well, these these people reported these numbers, so we took it. We took it as as the gospel, and we said, yeah, no, these companies are worth hundreds of millions without really going into the nitty-gritty and saying, is that, is that true? Yeah.
0: Ultimately, too, the biggest thing that you'll hear discussed in this interview is the term product market and product market fit. Product market is essentially how many people, in theory, this is usually based based off data, based off research, et cetera, surveys. It's a mix of a bunch of different things from an analytic and data perspective. But it is how many people in the world exist for what you do, what you're doing. And then even more granularly, how many people actually need what you're doing? I think that a lot of the problem that exists within the esports space truly is that we look around, we see professionals, we see these people that were around back when I started eight years ago and even before that, and you go, well, that person needs it. And it's like, great, well, that person was around 10 years ago, eight years ago, whatever else. They're here for the long haul. They've been here the whole time. They are not the person who shows up on Twitch and just watches, you know, the League of Legends World Championship or whatever and then moves on in their life. That's, that's the bigger audience. That's the real audience, the nitty gritty. So when we talk about product market fit, it's talking about, well, how is that identified? How do you, you know, kind of break that down? How did Juke identify that? And truly the real answer was lies, and I think you'll hear this, is unfortunately I think Juke did what a lot of businesses do. They asked, like, what do we want to build? Not necessarily, what do our users want? What do they need? Whereas, what is the solution we're providing? Passion is fine, but in business, it often is not.
1: Yeah, we, I mean, I think we, even we run into that. Um, there's always a story that we want to tell, and the, the reality is, does it, does does it, it do well? Yeah, does, it does it move, it move the move needle? needle. Does, it, does it impact people's ability to, to understand and engage with gaming content? are we are we getting new audiences who who otherwise wouldn't have been involved involved? Uh, those are the important questions that we ask and and in tech, the same is very much true like having worked at a couple of biotech companies like we whenever we did anything before we we started doing reactions at the bench or or, or whatever it may be we we made sure that it made sense we made sure that that. Whatever that experiment we were doing was, it it led into other more impactful things. That's that's the the issue with this kind of current age of of entrepreneurialism. There's a lot of people building what they want to build, but not necessarily realizing if if it has mass, mass appeal. Like having basic mass appeal of of, let's say, hundreds of thousands of users isn't really gonna do it anymore Uh, yeah we we unfortunately live in an age where you do have to get closer to millions of viewers millions of users yeah
0: and i'll just end on this before we throw it in the interview because i know this has been a little bit longer of an intro but you know i've struggled with this personally in my career you know i've built time uh, you know for eight years now as being sort of the esports reporter i you know have a read on the business and understanding the money etc that many other people don't and I'm able to share that with lots, you know, presumably a lots, lots of people. We're we're talking probably 20 plus thousand people on a pretty regular basis. But nonetheless, like that's just from a business sense, it's not economically viable. And so I've had to look myself in the mirror and have a hard conversation about like, what does the mass audience care about? And I still find passion journalism is still something I'm incredibly passionate about, and it's part of what we're building here at Overcome. But really, truly, it's it's about identifying like okay, where is this trend going? And I think the answer is not esports. And so, you know, you'll hear that come through in this interview. I, I do, you know, it, it is a tough listen. as Pram mentioned. It is certainly, you know, and to clarify, Ben had reached out to me about coming on a few days before they made their official announcement and so it's not sort of me trying to play gotcha or anything as well it's just, it's just an honest and very frank discussion and unfortunately like that you know the outlook of that is not particularly positive so we'll yeah, go ahead and I, think the interview.
1: I think it's go important to, to note that both of us really like ben ben's ben someone we both consider an incredible colleague in in the space he's he's been around gaming for 15 plus years now yeah we have no no reason to to try to bring them on as yeah a gotcha, but these are important conversations that that future entrepreneurs should go back should listen to and and should reassess what they're doing based on the idea of does it have mass appeal does it does it work in the long run
0: exactly, yeah, and I hope that's what people take away from this is you think from a different perspective so. Thank you all for uh, listening to our long intro. Hopefully that provides some useful context heading into this. So before we get into the interview with Ben, a word from our sponsors. Ben, all things considered, how are
2: you? You know, Jacob, I'm doing okay. This journey has been a struggle. Every startup journey is. But in general, we, we had come to grips with the fact that we probably weren't going to succeed with our original vision for some time now. So this has been in the works and, you know, it's it's a really sad day. I'm, I'm heartbroken that we couldn't take Juke to where we we wanted it to get to. But ultimately, you know, in a way, it's a it's a bit relieving as well, because we've seen the writing on the wall for, for some time and, and, and we're here.
0: What comes next in this evolution of what you have to do with Juke in terms of kind of winding the business down? Are you going to be seeking acquirers for any of the tech even post shutting everything up, or, or what is that going to be like the next few months for you?
2: Yeah, definitely. It, it's our fiduciary responsibility to do the best by our investors that we can. So we're going to be looking to sell the technology or whatever assets we have. You know, if you if you've been following me on Twitter, if you've been following our journey. You know that we've been looking for an acquirer for some time. We did get quite a bit of inbound interest, but a, a lot of those conversations we were having were for a full acquisition, where I would go along, Chris would go along, the whole team would be part of it. And now we're kind of shifting our focus a little bit away from maybe a full acquisition and more into a tech sale. Which, yeah, is not anything that any founder ever wants to have to do. But at this point, uh, it's the way that we can have the best outcome that. We possible for our investors.
0: A couple follow-up questions on that. One, I want to ask you about what this process has been like ever since, I I mean, even before you announced that things were kind of dire and that you all needed to find something kind of emergency to keep going. Before that, you, you wrote in your blog a little bit about knowing that things were tough earlier this year. Yeah. You know, as a startup founder myself, it's definitely really important to me, the values to just kind of be fully transparent with my team. I know that that can be really tough, but what has that been like? Have Have you been telling your team sort of the updates all the way from the beginning? And and what has it been like? Because it takes it takes you placing aside your ego a little bit to sh- to say that things aren't working, and you're also risking demoralizing your team when you need them to continue to remain productive. And so, what has it been like balancing that transparency with one one your own personal ego, and then two, you know, trying to keep everybody motivated on the product in case yeah. that was an opportunity in the end?
2: Yeah, uh, I'd say that. Like putting my ego aside as much as I can, I, I'd say transparency is a personal value that I I prioritize a lot and have in my entire career, even in the early days at Twitch. If, if anyone out there remembers, you know, whenever we screwed up or the servers died or we made a decision that wasn't the right one, you know, our, my approach had always been to First of all, tell the community like, "Hey, we screwed up. We're listening. We hear you. This is what we're doing to change this, fix this, whatever." And that was something we we actually established literally within our kind of values documents. Jacob, I don't I don't know if if you're if you're doing this kind of things with Overcome. If you have these kinds of internal documents where you're telling your team, this, "These are our values. This is what's important to us." Transparency is actually in that for for Jude. and in general with the team. I don't know if it. Make, I don't know if this is the right way to run a startup, but for a long time now, we've been telling the entire team, we had been telling the entire team, this is how much money we have left in the bank. This is what our monthly burn rate is. And this is you know, the timeline that we need to do fundraising. So the entire team knew all the way back when we launched the Juke app, which was February and March of this year on iOS and Android, we were already at six months of runway at that point. Which, if you subscribe to any of the startup philosophies and read the startup books, uh, there's a there's a pretty common rule of thumb that says you should start fundraising, at, at least start fundraising when you have six months of runway left, if not already be into that, well into that process. So we already knew that we were cutting it pretty close all the way back when we had basically just barely launched the the pivot for June. So. In our weekly team meetings, we looked at our top level metrics and KPIs. This is how many users are coming to the app. This is what our retention looks like. Here's how many comments are happening. Here's the metrics that we're focusing on. And we also talked about the financial metrics of the company and the health of the company throughout the whole process.
0: You know, you mentioned the fiduciary duty to your investors. You have a fairly impressive cap table, and I want to go over that just a little bit briefly. Some of your early investors included Blizzard co-founder Mike Morheim. More recently, you brought on in the past couple of years, you brought on Jonathan Shipman, who was one of the original engineers behind Twitch, so one of your former colleagues, and Kevin Lynn, who is also a co-founder of Twitch and was basically the head of the Twitch organization while it was part of Justin TV, and then a very high-level executive when it spun off. He's your former boss. There are several other people in that, that org that were incredibly impressive, but you also did a cr- crowdfunding round on Republic that basically brought in the public and had the public bet on you and you had a lot of community support behind esports. How would you describe the sort of pressure and the relationship that exists between you and your investors, especially kind of reflecting on this? I'm sure you have in these past
2: couple of weeks thinking about what might happen. Yeah, I mean, our, uh, look, if you're a seasoned investor, then you you expect that nine out of 10 of your investments are not going to yield anything. And actually, most of the nine of the 10 will probably yield nothing at all the calculus that venture capital firms have and, and even you know seasoned angel investors is that you know you actually really only care a lot about the 10% that you know return your money by 10x or up to 50x. So if you get one company out of 10 that returns 50x it doesn't matter so much if 9 out of the 10 go the way of the dodo. So I mean, I, all of our investors were very respectful with, with this and understanding of the startup grind, understanding that you have to kind of shoot for the moon. And that's what you're in the business of doing as a startup. If you're raising venture capital, even if you're range, raising angel investment to any large sum, you're basically making, staking a claim that we can build a billion dollar business. You know, and a, a seasoned angel investor isn't going to put 25,000 or 50,000 or 100,000 into a company. Expecting that they might double their money they they you only really want to put that in if you have a reasonable belief that this company can fifty x return on on what you put in um so i i honestly, we didn't feel a ton of hardcore pressure on a day to day basis from our investors. if anything, they were very supportive. they were great mentors, great at opening doors and making introductions, so nothing but good things to say about our investment kind of kind of any of our investors including. You know, 500 startups or the angel investors that put funds in.
0: The next thing I want to ask you about that, though, is the. The part of a startup that comes with sort of identifying product market fit, and this is something that in a way we might disagree on, and, and I don't mean it in any sort of way disrespectfully. You know, you've you've came and asked questions on the show. You've heard me talk, as I'm sure, you know, mentioning and even in one of the early episodes with Atriok, you've heard me talk about the way that I feel about the esports space. And it feels very echo chambery and in, in a way that I think is very negative to to the space. You know, I got in an argument a couple of months ago on Twitter with Kurt Carter, who's an agent at CSA, who are friends of both of ours. And, you know, my argument with Kurt was basically that the esports awards was a circle jerk and I was saying that because they had left out several different nominees who were games journalists and don't cover our space but did very valuable esports work such as Mikhail Klementov and Cecilia D'Anastasio from Bloomberg and the Washington Post and uh, unfortunately I think that there's just anecdotally being a part of this there is a set of people in esports who as my grandfather would say are high on their own farts meaning like basically that they you know it's not necessarily self-absorption, but it is a little bit delusion, I, I think. And unfortunately, like, yeah, you can be very supportive of of the people in the esports space, but at the same time, you have to recognize what the the audi- that that audience is very small. The people who are actively engaged with you, with me, like any of, you know, any of those companies, et cetera, that is functionally a very small number. And so when you were thinking about pivoting away from the TV guide, which I actually like sung the praises of because I thought it had like potential to be spun off and sold to somewhere like ESPN or somewhere else that like, you know, could have really, yeah, could have really value valued from the API of pulling all that match data and populating it and showing it right. Like that's, that is super valuable. Pivoting into a social network for a space that was too, that is very niche still to this day when other things like Twitter, Reddit, et cetera, exist, what was that decision from from a business perspective?
2: Oh, uh, the decision to pivot from our initial product into into the mobile app and the social first experience was, uh, and I outline quite a bit of this in the blog post. <clears throat> uh, was was both a I think a natural and positive evolution for the company and something that we felt was necessary given what we saw under the hood with the initial product, the TV guide product, very. Happy with how it grew in its first kind of nine months. You know, it grew completely organically. We never really spent money on marketing. And it grew through things like SEO really, really fast. But ultimately, retention for users that were landing on the TV guide was, was really low. I mean, it was like it, w- it was essentially a media destination. And people were getting the information they needed. They were finding the, the streams that they wanted. And they weren't necessarily becoming long-term sustained users. And when you look at the startup and venture capital space, anything that resembles a media company is oh, nine out of 10 investors in Silicon Valley, at least, are almost completely allergic to that because it's an advertising-reliant model, and it's just not the sexiest model. More than that, though, for us, we didn't want to build a media company either. You know, we were looking to build a community hub for esports. That was always our long-term vision or our long-term dream for the product. So we looked at our you know we we took a long look in the mirror and said, "Hey, look, monthly active unique users is 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 pretty strong. It's been growing organically, but ultimately, we're completely reliant on Google uh, and SEO to to get to where we are and to continue this growth trajectory. So we needed to figure out what the next evolution for the product was and that's when we re- went to the drawing board and started talking to our users every single day. We did make a concerted effort to go outside of even our existing users, people who were juked fans. We, we did make a very concerted effort to talk to just average eSports fans as well as part of that mix. So we weren't kind of, I guess, too incestuous with that. But yeah, so we talked to hundreds of of of, of eSports fans and juke users in one-on-one interviews. We, we conducted a bunch of different surveys in a, in a variety of ways to figure out what that next step was, and ultimately discovered that the majority of Truly, the majority of folks that we were talking to and asking questions about the social experiences that they have around esports were just unsatisfied with the existing solutions. You know, if you, I mean, if you want to have a nuanced opinion and put that out on Twitter, you know, that's not going to go very well nine out of ten times. And if you're a nobody and you don't have a lot of followers, nobody's going to see your opinion anyway. Even worse, you run the risk of getting quote retweeted by Thorin or Richard Lewis for having an incorrect opinion and having a kind of a whole kind of following. Attack you. I mean, that's that happens to average esports fans who just put out their opinion into the world. So we we kept hearing this over and over again. I mean, Twitch chat don't you know? There, there's no meaningful conversations happening there. So we we wanted to make a big shift and and change what the focus of our product was. And so we eventually landed on trying to fix and improve toxicity and inclusivity in in the esports space and create a more pure destination for true fans where you know you could actually meet other people who were just as passionate as you to discuss the meta you know the Overwatch League meta or you know is Faker going to win worlds this year and actually have a real kind of deeper discussion than what was possible on Twitch chat on Twitter and even Reddit to a great extent that was actually a huge surprise to me is that reddit was almost viewed more negatively in the conversations we had than even Something like Twitch chat, uh, which I, I didn't actually personally expect. But, you know, the, the overall consensus was that these existing solutions just weren't solving this need for social engagement and, and validation around your passion for esports.
0: But important to solving a need is identifying how many people actually have it. And I think that that is the biggest question I have for you is in evaluating sort of the product market that exists, just, the, just not even the fit, just really, truly the numbers, a numbers game here. How many people are engaged enough directly in esports to have that need right? that you're describing, right? Or even want that need, because there's a difference between having it and actually desiring to get off the platforms that exist and go somewhere else. You know, I, I went back today and I looked at the Republic campaign. I looked at the WeFunder campaign. And, you know, you're citing some of the newsu numbers and some of the other growth data in those types of things about the esports market. And frankly, and I'll say it here, the news numbers are bull. They are the most misleading thing. They're nice to look at in a deck, but they are incredibly misleading from an actual engagement perspective. Because just because someone watches the League of Legends World Championship or the Dota 2 International or the Counter-Strike Majors, etc., doesn't mean that they're actively engaged in the community that is esports. And I actually think that number is like less than 200,000 people. I think it's incredibly narrow that are truly involved in English speaking esports. And so I guess what what sort of market research did you do before deciding to to make that pivot?
2: Well, first of all, I wouldn't necessarily agree that it's that small. That's you know, that's that's pretty tiny. These teams, these players, these leagues have a lot of fans. I mean, I think there's 200,000 Overwatch League fans out there it you know that actually care and watch the matches and and care about the meta
0: so just to be clear though I'm not I'm saying that different from watching the matches I wouldn't count the matches as necessarily caring there's a difference between someone who watches Sunday night football and Monday night football and Thursday night football and somebody who reads Ryan Russell right right like those are two very different audiences making that jump is different right and so but because esports is not so much at scale the fact that those like people that just watch the matches aren't big enough yet that get the trickle down number of people that actively deeply engage yeah. and that's what i'm talking about that's the number i think yeah is.
2: I, I mean you're you're right i think the news you reports are misleading when you say there's 500 million esports viewers that may be true technically and i think they say about half of that 250 million are considered you know uh, engaged fans that prob that number is probably high in terms of people that really do want to consume all kinds of media and this is a big part of their identity. I don't think it's 250 million, but that was actually, I mean, that was part of the problem that we're trying to solve. I mean, I think in esports, the path to becoming that engaged fan is so fraught with friction and, and, you know, issues of toxicity and issues where you can basically fall out of the funnel at any time in the process. So, our goal was to actually widen that group. And I think while I agree that esports, the hype has been overblown, and ha- especially in the you know mid-2010s, like 2015, 2016, 2017 era, the hype around esports was completely over-exaggerated and overblown. But I also think that over the next decade, over the next two decades, over the next three decades, I'm still incredibly bullish on esports in the long term. So building a platform for a niche audience today, but one that we expect will continue to grow is a a viable strategy for a startup. In fact, it's part of the playbook is to focus on a specific niche when you begin and then broaden over time, which was, by the way, part of our plan. We didn't expect that the product would only be focused on the top 1% professional esports competitions. In fact, one of the things we did with, when we made this pivot was we, we took a long look in the mirror and realized people are discussing the game and the meta and how to get better, uh, and they, they, they want to find other people to play with just as much as they want to discuss the top one percent. So while our focus in the in, you know, was in, you know frankly, up until even today, you know, we're primarily focused on professional eSports. The plan over the long term was to eventually expand beyond just the professional scene and become a platform where you could find other people to play games with, where you could build your, your competitive gaming identity. And I, and I think competitive gaming and e-sport, professional esports get conflated a lot. If you talk about how many people play ranked League of Legends, Overwatch, Valorant, CSGO, Dota 2, then you're talking about hundreds of millions of fans for sure. For sure, that's hundreds of millions at that point. So our plan was over time to expand beyond the initial niche of professional esports and into competitive gamers.
0: You know, the other part that I, I gave not you really any flack, but Jordan Fragan, who I do ex- or do respect you know, when you all announced a few weeks ago that you were seeking an acquisition or you would have to shut down the company. She wrote an article where she did an interview with you, and there was one paragraph in particular that left this a little bit sore spot in my mouth, which was specifically that the problem that esports startups are having with fundraising is directly correlated to the economy. And look, we're in a terrible economic environment right now. It is a recession. We are headed even further deep into one. And I speak to people every day who like make investments and they're just like, yeah, I'm not doing anything right now. That's true. But I I think that there's an extra layer of this that was not noted and was sort of blown off about what has happened in esports over the past six years, seven years, which is frankly, there are a lot of people in this industry who sold a ton of investors, a whole lot of some of them unknowingly, some of them for purposes of self-enrichment. And some of them, frankly, because they're delusional. Like it just, And I'm not saying you're in any of those boats. I actually think you were quite genuine in your cell. And frankly, I respect the fact that every single valuation you raised, every single re- funding round you raised was relatively realistic because a lot of startups worked and they just slapped numbers on a page and somebody paid for the number, right? And so, again, I'm not lumping you into the, one of those categories. But when that continues to happen, when you see things like VIN, who are, you know, raised more than $30 million over a period of two years and then blew through it all in about a year, not including sort of the early startup operations. When you see things like G4, more recently in that category of boat, but you also continually see these esports teams who still don't have the answer to how we how do they make significant money. When the top earning esports team makes fifty to sixty million dollars a year, but are spending ninety million dollars a year to stay relevant and to operate. That doesn't make any sense. And that has been a problem. Those types of margins have been a problem for six or seven years. And no one's figured it out other than to get the hell out of esports and go do something else in gaming or creators or technology or whatever it might be. And so I I really, like, really want to push back hard on that. And just from a perspective, like, our industry needs to take a little bit of responsibility.
2: I mean, it could be both things at once. Right And it, I think it is and, both and things, you know it's both things it was And that I, I totally understand much. where you're coming from. I, I, will, I will push back and say it is both things, because the market for, for any startup has just gotten much, much, much harder. But I think what you're alluding to is the fact that you know there are certain industries which come into favor in the V.C. world in the 2014 through 2016 eSports was the hot thing to invest in. It's been crypto. It's been fantasy and sports betting. It's been all of these different things over the years. And now not only has esports lost its shine from where it was in 2014 to 2016, it has actually become anti-sexy to most VCs that we've talked to. And not even that we talked to, just just 100% across the board. I mean, you can even look at these VCs that emerged originally Supposedly, as pure play eSports VCs, Bitcraft, Convoy, Griffin gaming partners, these were the or these are the VCs which have invested the most into eSports over the past six, seven, eight years. When was the last time Bitcraft invested in an eSports company? I spoke to someone who sits on their investment committee, and he told me that they haven't even reviewed as a committee. They have not even reviewed an esports company in a year. That doesn't that that that's not even invested in an esports company in a year. They have an, e- an esports company hasn't even come to the table. So if the esports, you know, if the if the esports focused VCs aren't even looking at the space, then it, it's actually almost even worse outside because one of the things that has happened, which needed to happen. Is all of the sophisticated investors have realized that the vast majority of value in the esports space gets captured by publishers and developers. This is not something that's new to anyone listening right now. This is incredibly obvious, right? Riot, Blizzard, Activision, even Valve—they're capturing tons of value, right? And it's really hard to make money if, if you if you're not one of those companies. That. Wasn't widely understood in 2015, and in fact, the the market conditions have have actually changed since 2015. There was a lot less developer control. You know, MLG and ESL and DreamHack were more important parties. It was actually more viable to create a business in esports because there was less publisher, uh, I think, uh, uh, control over the over the ecosystem. So we're now at a point where every single VC that understands eSports, and that's all of them. I mean, every VC, I actually, I don't think VCs are quite as dumb as Ludwig does. <laughs> I listened to your Ludwig interview. Most of them actually do understand the market conditions decently well. And that is that was necessary, right? And it was, it was very much needed. That does not change the fact that I am still bullish on eSports in the long term. And that's not that does not change the fact that I, believe there will be opportunities for startups, and there are still are opp- opportunities for startups in the space. Of course, I started Juked because I believe that there is a big opportunity here. But it is no stretch whatsoever to say that when a VC hears the word esports, a lot of them are turned off just right away. They say, oh, you can't make any money there. I, t- I invested in XYZ company, or maybe I didn't even invest in XYZ company, but I just know because all of my VC friends talk about it and our analysts that did all the research looked at it, and it's really hard to make money in that space.
0: And they're, they're not wrong, to be honest. I, like, I, I don't have the answer to all the economic issues that exist within esports. I do think that... I think where we agree is that this audience is only going to get bigger, but it gets bigger when gaming gets bigger. Like The player bases just have to be bigger. That, like that's the simple solution, and I think that there will be a time when people who are gen Alpha, et cetera, or have grown up with gaming their entire lives that a subsection of them that number will be so big that a subsection of them will carry the eSports industry. but I think that this like the skis got put before sort of the Stokes here, and like everybody's just sliding down the hill and crashing into the rock at the bottom right like that's that's kind of how I feel about where the investment landscape of of eSports went frankly, is the fact that it's just the audience just isn't there to scale any of this. And it doesn't matter. I mean, you mentioned earlier some of the big esports teams. What are they actually a fan of, though, right? Like, they're a fan of often the creators nowadays that are assigned to these esports teams, not actually the players themselves. And there's a responsibility, and it's sad to say this, but, like, there's a responsibility for these players to be interesting, and many of them just aren't. There are very few players in the top games that are, like, truly compelling from, like, a personality perspective. And yeah, you can say maybe that doesn't, you know, maybe that exists in other sports. Yeah, it does. But at the same time, like you look at any successful sports, even the more niche, and I'm using in air quotes for the video people, niche sports like F1 or, you know, professional wrestling, like those things have really high characters. Even we're not talking about sort of basketball or football or places where they have LeBron James and Steph Curry and Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers, and sort of, you know, the biggest people that are relevant to anyone, not just just people that are fans of football or, bas- or basketball. Even the smaller niche sports have it, and a lot of esports don't. It just, it just doesn't. There's not a compelling offering here, and there are stories that should be better told. It's part of what I want to do in my career is to tell stories of the people that truly are compelling that do sort of go past I play video games for a living because that story is, like, old and tired. But it, unfortunately, I just think right now, like, Makes people a fan of an esports team is that they are a fan of, of a creator, right? Like they're a fan of a creator who's signed to it, and that that is not nothing to do with esports. That has everything to do with like gaming, entertainment, and creator space.
2: Yeah. uh and then then you do take a step back and think about who are the the biggest creators of the last decade. A lot of them were pro players originally, right? right? You know, the the cutie pies and scaras and ninjas and shrouds of the world got their start all as professional players which is you know would they would would cutie pie have become this giant streamer I, i'm a little bit dated okay i'm still talking about cutie pie i know we're way past that at this point but you know it, but th- those it was those i think you're totally right it was those personalities that put dignitas on the map and made dignitas so so popular back yeah
0: and they they even they they've recognized this much quicker than most of the investors they recognized that there was not like big money to be made here and got the hell out right like you think about cutie one of the first examples of that, actually, he's come up on this podcast twice this week because we had Cutie Cinderella, aptly named after oh, him. Oh wow, I didn't um, know that <laughs> on the on the podcast earlier this Today week. Today I learned. Yeah, she said that. So, but I mean, even even she, like, she wasn't a any sports competitor, but she told us, you know, huge League of Legends fan, and then realized at some point, she said it verbatim. Realized at some point, like, you know, when she starts playing video games on her stream, people tune out, they click out. And and you're a former Twitch employee, so you understand how sort of funny that is. That that is the the way that things have gone that people don't want to watch games on twitch anymore they want to watch just chatting or irl or hot tubs and beaches and whatever it might be it's, it's the gaming website is not really the gaming website anymore at least in in a way
2: yeah it's come full circle back to justin tv yep correct
0: yeah i was a, i was a justin tv user that saw a lot of that content back in the day that and pirated ufc streams so yeah no, nonetheless I, I do want to talk about that a, a little bit because, you know, the the companies that support esports the most are places like Twitch, places like Riot, places like Blizzard, etc. And I do think that 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 passion is really needed. And for big moments like the World Championship that j- just happened recently or the Counter-Strike Major that happened while ended last week, those events like they are totally warranted to have all that hype and excitement. But we've seen sort of even those companies check themselves on like how much are we spending day to day on the short term. And so what I mean by that for maybe those unfamiliar is like they've reduced their investment in sort of the domestic regular season stuff that happens. So sure, they still go all out for the big events, but for the things that are happening a little bit more regularly, it's much more smaller. How do you think that impacts the ecosystem just outside of those companies as well? Or places like Jude, or places like others that like, Ultimately, your success inadvertently is tied to the success of these
2: publishers and, and
0: other platforms and what they're doing.
2: Yeah, um, I mean, it- I think rightfully Riot is trying to make LCS profitable. And I think you know they've talked about this quite a few times. They're trying to make their esports properties profitable on their own two feet. But at the same time, you have this messed up market condition where esports is also still marketing for the game. So I think it's, I don't know if it's possible outside of literally creating a startup within your company that's totally independent, that runs all of the esports. I just don't think it's possible to completely disassociate the two. So while Riot does want to make money on on esports and obviously Activision Blizzard with franchising model with Overwatch League and Call of Duty League are trying to actually Drive a whole bunch of revenue through franchising fees and things like that and and broadcast rights it's still marketing for the games, and that will i mean i it's hard to imagine that ever not being at least at least subconsciously part of the calculus for these big publishers so i mean you 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 mentioned that costs are coming down and the investment might be going down a little bit that's certainly true for overwatch league I mean the production value this season was kind of crazy for. In some of the cases where I'm sure folks may have seen some of the photos of of like the Hawaii events where the you know just they're in a small cramped room that looks like my middle school classroom basically with like low ceilings and stuff like that. But I think one of the things that you know you know me Jacob I'm I'm a forever esports optimist. I'm always I'm always cheering for this industry. I'm I I maybe look for the good signals uh, more than I look for the bad signals. But one of the good signals I continue to see in the space is viewership growing every single year. I mean it's it's like incredibly consistent. Viewership just just goes up. I mean believe the news reports if you uh, or not, but you can look at the concurrent viewership reports from Twitch and from YouTube and you know Worlds does I mean I don't have I don't think they've released their numbers yet for Worlds this year but you know Worlds does better every year, TI does better every year. Evo and the fighting game community have had had some rough spots, especially during COVID, but for quite some time, Evo was doing better every single year. And you know, Overwatch League actually had great viewership this this year, you know, maybe because of drops, maybe not. But on a on a macro sense, almost every single top 10 esport viewership goes up on the aggregate. And then you have new esports games like Valorant coming out and becoming a top five esport within its first year and a half, two years. So on the whole, I am not concerned at all about these trends because I'm looking at the viewership number and it's, it's, it's freaking growing, dude. So yeah, maybe the investment is coming down a bit, but I'm not too concerned about the, the, that's in, the impact that that might have on, on over, overall viewership numbers because they, they are growing.
0: Two questions that I think you have a very unique perspective on. One is a startup founder and one because you are a former Twitch employee and you had access to a very long time being able to look at the backend data. So the first question is about the actual audience broadly. One of the biggest issues that we have and this affects startups like yours and others is being able to nuance, measure the data of this audience in a nuanced manner. It is something that Twitch has had consistent issues with for at this point 11 years 11 plus years you know the thing is about tv ratings and the way that tv ratings work is that you can measure all the way down to you know who is this person what is the account that they have signed up to with direct tv or dish network or whatever one right like what are they watching what are they interested in how frequently are they watching it right and that data some of that exists at twitch but the like personality data etc doesn't it's it's basically an educated guess, as I understand. Like you have to you t- have to take a little bit of a gander. Twitch doesn't age gate much thing or many things. They're not asking not asking for people's personal data that you have to have when you sign up for a cable membership. So, how do we do a better job as an industry? What is the solution to better understanding who the actual audience is?
2: <laughs> Great question. I don't think I have the answer. I will echo this as a concern in the industry because I think it's a. I mean. I've heard from many esports team owners, as well as the publishers and developers, even that they there, there's a bit of a a sense of anxiety of of not actually having ownership of your fan relationship. Uh, not that the NFL necessarily has ownership of their fan relationship through Directv, but they do get that data in a in a more robust and meaningful way. But I think that this is kind of one of the issues that esports has to overcome is that you know. Twitch, Twitter, the, 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 ways, the places in which they are engaging with their audience, they, they don't actually own that. And the data, the, the, the resources they have to get data are oftentimes limited. In terms of what's the answer, I don't know. This was one of the things that we wanted to hopefully be part of the solution for in, in esports was understanding and being able to reach the right kind of esport fan. You know, we were hoping to, to, to do that with you and understanding more about what they actually engage with, what kind of content they like, what kind of esports, you know, knowing exactly which esports teams are their favorites and in which order and which games they follow. That was one of the things that we wanted to help provide in the long term. But I'm not a data scientist and not my area of expertise, but I do know that this is an issue kind of across the board. And the next part is actually for the audience in this
0: Twitter space and beyond is being able to educate people in our industry that this is a real that these things are real a real concern and to collectively work as as a group to improve them where we need to. And this is the other part. You know, I I won't say I scream into the ether because I have a platform. I have five thousand plus you know substack subscribers, about eighty thousand plus Twitter followers, etc. I get get fairly good engagement on my work, but I do find that a lot of the industry doesn't listen to some of the problems that we've discussed in this, whether that be, you know, sort of willful ignorance and they they don't want to hear it because they are super passionate about something or whatever it might be. But I do think it's really important for the future of people's careers, for future startup founders, for other people trying to work in this space to have a better holistic view of where the issues lie. And actually, I think it's almost better because you could almost build a business in solving some of those issues, whether it be some of that data tracking, et cetera. So how do we do that? How do we better educate this set of people in the industry that work in this industry to like wake up, smell the roses here and have an honest conversation about what, what's wrong with this?
2: Well, it sounds like you're on the forefront of trying to get the good word out. So good on you. I mean, it's a, if I'm being super honest, a lot of us, you know, you, you said, oh, I'm talking about gener- this in general. Not you, Ben. Don't worry, you. Not I'm not talking about you. But I mean if i'm being honest and looking in the mirror and, and 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 trying to be as intellectually honest as possible you know we probably overestimated the number of of fans that fit this bucket of being so hardcore that they wanted to discuss every single match and every single tournament in a way that was less toxic like you know we 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 probably made some blunders as well that were based on us having blinders and thinking and just being so passionate so excited, so optimistic about this esports space. Um, you know, I I I don't know the folks at Nuzu. I don't know how they get their data. I don't necessarily want to say that their data is is fraudulent or, you know, I, I, I'm sure that they have good methods for for collecting things. But I mean I do I, I do also I have also recently especially come to think a lot about like Someone, who, again, like what you said, I think is actually pretty pertinent. Someone who tunes into the Overwatch League finals, you know, that it looks great when you can say we had 400,000 concurrent viewers and like we had 10 million total unique viewers over the course of a six day event. But those are not the viewers, those viewers are not engaged on a daily basis. These are the tent pole events that you hear your friend talk, like everyone's talking about it, so you tune in. Um, but that's not necessarily the esport fan that. Is going to buy your merch, is going to subscribe to your subscription program, is going is to you know consume every bit of content you put out. So I do think I think you're right that we need to be a little bit more intellectually honest with ourselves about the number of people that are truly engaged in the esports space and, and how we get there. I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, I've been thinking about that all year and writing about it, thinking about it, trying to like obviously adapt my business not to go through the same sort of Put pit holes and like just make you know hardcore esports content because I think there's no money there. Or, and frankly, I think there's no audience there, it's not even just a money thing, it's like people actually care about what we're creating. I just think the audience isn't big enough, as I said. And I was like, I went to the League of Legends World Championship a few weeks ago in Atlanta, the semifinals, finals was a sold out event with 20,000 ish people. And I went as a fan, not as media. I didn't, I purposely didn't ask for the badge, and I ended up sitting next to a, a like group of guys who were early to mid thirties they were super hardcore league of legends esports fans in 2012 2013 2014 they then had lives families etc and now they play like league once a week or so together but like this is the first sort of deep engagement they've had with esports in any significant amount of time and that was just because you know their sort of ability to get to atlanta a lot of them were from the area or from the southeast in general They were able to come to this one event and like see each other and have, you know, and be friends and hang out and and experience something. But they haven't been deeply engaged with us in eight years. I actually think that there's a lot of those. I think that there are a lot of people that those people that come back. I think there are new audiences that are coming in all the time and they don't know anything. Right. Like there. I can't tell you how many people I've encountered who have no idea who I am. And, you know, but if you were around in League of Legends in 2016 and 2017, yeah, you would absolutely know my work because of because of the contribution to the scene. But I haven't done that sort of stuff in a couple of years. And so people are just tuned out and I'm not offended by that. But it is sort of one, it's humbling, but it's also very interesting to think about that, to think about like sort of, you know, what's relevant. That's really, really, really important to me thinking about sort of. Everything that I kind of called shoulder programming, everything that isn't the actual matches themselves, and everything that's around
2: it. Well, since you shared anecdotal story, I'll, I'll share one as well because I found it kind of amusing and and enlightening. I, <laughs> I I've become addicted with like KonMari and getting rid of all of my old stuff. and And I, I was selling something on Facebook Marketplace, and I went to go meet the person and and sell the item. And I saw that they had a sage from Valorant. They had a sage kind of like. Dink, dongle on their in their car and i said oh valorant fan and, the, and they're like oh yeah yeah a huge valorant fan and i'm like oh do you watch valorant esports and they're like yeah i'm a huge sentinels fan and i said oh did you are, are you watching their match today shroud is playing for them now that's gonna be crazy and they said oh wait shroud joined sentinels wait they're playing today and and i only Pull this little tidbit out because this was like the biggest story you could imagine in Valorant esports. Shroud is playing competitive Valorant for the Sentinels, who are the most hyped team in Valorant esports, and this self-proclaimed Sentinels fan had no idea. Uh, and that that was like, whoa, like that that was crazy to me. Yeah.
0: Well, you just explained both your product market fit and also the problem. It's like you got to be able to get those people. You can provide them the solution, but if they don't know the solution exists, finding sort of the nice, you know, bridging the gap. Where's the bridge the gap? And I, I don't know the answer to that. Right. Like I I think juked and and I hope it hasn't come off this way. I think the product in itself, the idea is real, was really valuable and actually like had for the audience that it served had a really unique purpose. Um, it's just about is that audience big enough? That's the biggest question I've been asking myself. Not just about you, but every everything, like the entire industry, a lot of what people are doing. You know, I've, I've worked in media for a long time. The, a lot of the media companies are in this space, which we continually see fold and fold and fold, right? Like, it. it's highly concerning.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, well, I don't have to tell you, but the state of esports journalism has never looked more dire. It's really concerning to see that every single new esports kind of journalistic entity seems to go away within three years or less. Now, I mean, who's out there these days? It's Dot Esports and, and Dexerto, Dexerto. But yeah. the
0: thing is that both of, but what both of those companies have done that I think is really important to talk about, and you know, Dot Esports is my former employer, and I don't say this with bias, I say it with data. Those companies have 15 plus million monthly active users because they diversify their content. They're not writing about the hardcore esports stuff all the time dot esports does a lot of seo optimized work that is like here's when the new pokemon game comes out or here's the lost ark build you know like this stuff shows up when i search it and it and they're there because they understand how to do that
1: effectively yeah.
0: dicciotto does that but for creators yeah and so when there's creator drama or you know anything in the creator space they're the first people to be on it so yeah they do cover esports but even they recognize at some point like that's not sustainable long term
2: yeah that that bums me out man bums me out i i i pose the question back to you how do we fix how do we fix that i mean how do we i i guess it's just i mean it sounds like your hypothesis is just the 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 size of the user base or the audience that is actually interested in deep editorial content in esports is just way way too small um but it i think it's a mix of that
0: but i also think it's a mix of going to where they are and that is something that a lot of the outlets don't do You know, a lot of. I have mixed opinions here and I and I say this, I've invited them on the show. I want I want them to be here because, you know, the show is about people that are powerful and successful. But I look at like Esports Talk and now Full Squad and what Jake Lucky is doing, what Hunter Grooms is doing. And I have some critiques from an ethical point of view that I think are valid as a journalist. And I and I would not do things the same way. But what I admire about them as a business What I admire about what they do from a content perspective is they go to where the damn audience is, (laughs) whether it be actually posting the stuff on Twitter and short form media to be able to share or actually on YouTube. And, you know, sometimes you're talking about some of those biggest esports stories. They're the people who are providing the esports story in the right place, be it TikTok or be it on YouTube or wherever it may be. So I respect that they have you know figured out where where the audience size is, even if I do have some gripes with the way that it's produced and the way that it's created. But I really do admire that they found they found the lane, and I think that like reading a website is not necessarily. I think some people do want to read, but it really has to be something unique and compelling. You know, like for as much as I've gotten recently to not do like free agency stuff nearly as much in League of Legends anymore, my most read piece at Dotty Sports last year was not that. My two most read pieces at Dotty Sports last year were one, uh, and and I had a piece by the way about perks and a contract issue that got like twenty two million impressions. Wow six thousand sixteen thousand link clicks you want not talk about big stories the esports audience couldn't even click yeah. through, click through and it's like but then i had two pieces that did a hundred plus thousand reads one that was about a, a scam artist who tried to scam people out of you know 30 plus million dollars in the esports space and that blew up on google and people were interested in it because some of the big teams that they know were are involved and then another one about the Scott Williams house that was about sort of everything that happened there and talking to a bunch of the victims and, and having and even sky himself and, and putting together the story. And so it's like, yeah, you can say whatever you want about me choosing not to do league of legends free agency stuff. But at the end of the day, people don't care. They read the headline and they move on. And so yeah. I think like finding things that are compelling, but also going to where the audience is because YouTube and like an editorial website couldn't be more
2: different. Right. Right. <laughs> I think Jake lucky. Is an incredible, incredible. Well, he's a beast. He's a beast. I don't know how he does it. He's like if Slasher was like had meth or something and was just like on twenty four seven, like seven days a week. I, I miss Slasher. And, and ten
0: years younger, <laughs> ten years younger, and appealing to a, a Zoomer- Yeah, I, I, Zoomer- I, I, I that's but, just
2: yeah. me saying I miss Slasher. Please come back, Rod. We, the industry is better when you're around. I, he's never going to hear that, but. Yeah, no, I mean, you got to respect the hustle of, of those guys. They've really found their niche.
0: Yeah, I again, I, I respect respect the work even if I critique it sometimes where I think it's valid. But the, the last question I want to pose to you from my point of view is if you had to do things differently, if you had all the knowledge, and I, I ask every startup founder this, if you had the knowledge that you have now about the industry About the product market fit and everything else, when you left Twitch and you started ideating for this project, what would you change?
2: I mean, uh, the startup journey is the most condensed learning experience you could possibly get doing anything in your life. And I'm 100% confident that if I do ever decide to do a startup again, it's gonna be a lot better (laughs) in a lot of ways. Most founders fail a few times before they really, really succeed. And I, I think in a lot of ways, I was a good executive and a, and a good leader. In a lot of ways, I was a terrible executive and a terrible leader. And I think uh, a lot is going to be better the next time. In terms of the product market fit and really the issue that we've been talking about this entire time, which is essentially how many people exa- actually truly are passionate about esports and want to consume content all the time about esports and want to discuss esports every waking hour i think that group is not as big as we had thought and um and our strategy you know, we were there's a lot of ways that you can come up with an idea for a startup you have to start with solving a problem and it can be done through user research it can be done through You know, some people just like I want to make a lot of money. What look and they're geniuses, so they think of like the best way to make a lot of money, and they they find these little holes to fit. A lot of startup founders start by working on a problem that they have personally, and that was our case, right? We we started. We said, I'm 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 a huge esports fan, and I am tired of having to know exactly which Twitch channel or which YouTube channel the stream is going to be on. I am tired of having to go to Liquipedia on a second monitor to find the brackets and standings. I'm tired of, you know, having to find my news stories from just being addicted to Twitter and Reddit and social media. I'm tired of toxicity on these platforms. Um, so that was our impetus for starting Juped. It was trying to solve a problem that we had and it was trying to build something that we wanted to see exist because we thought the industry could be growing way faster if these issues were solved. But I think we were, you know, we we are the 1% top most hardcore esports fans. We're, we're probably we're probably the top 1% of the 1% of the 1% of most hardcore esports fans. Like we have been following esports for 12, 13, 14, 15 years. Even before I followed esports, I was a competitive gamer. Like c- competitive gaming and esports is basically my entire life for the last 20 years. So I think we built something that we wanted to see exist more than we built something that, was a huge problem for millions of people. And if I could go back and start over, like I'm still hyper passionate about esports. I still think, despite everything we said, I still think it's possible to create a successful startup. I think that there's enough people out there, there's enough problems in esports that need to be solved. But maybe I would have taken the approach of building a more general social platform for gamers. And having esports be part of that, and you know, in the login flow, say, are you an esports fan? Okay, great. Which leagues do you follow? Which teams do you follow? Still having everything that we have that makes up Juke today, but I think it we we could have a hundred times larger addressable market if we had focused on the total pie of gamers. Um, I think another thing we could have done is maybe focus on a specific game first rather than going super broad. This is something that you read in every startup literature ever is like, focus on one specific community and then prove your model. And then, hey, if it really works and it grows organically and you have product market fit with a small group, then you go wider, you go wider, you go wider, you go wider wider until eventually it's a giant market. I was like very stubbornly anti that because in my idea, the niche that we're going for is esports fans who like multiple games. Because if all you follow is League of Legends and that's it, then lolesports.com is a pretty good resource. And it's 90% or it's 75% of what we had wanted to build. But if you follow multiple esports, that's when the problem gets much worse for having to go to a million different sources and you're you're missing matches, you're missing news, whatever, unless you're literally glued to Twitter 24-7, which a lot of us are, but at least for now. So I think those are some of the things that I think may have been roadblocks or issues for us is, um, you know, we, we went really broad. I mean, the or- original juke.gg website, we supported 25 esports games from the get-go. And that was part of our value proposition. doesn't matter what game you follow. doesn't matter how many games you follow, we'll have it all. But I think maybe if we had focused on a specific game, we could have built more features and had more marketing tailored to that game. And then, as with the with the social pivot, I think I, I I do think Discord is an incredible tool, but it's no longer focused on gaming either. So I, I do think that there's space for a social product for gamers, as much as it's like super cringe to say that out loud because I've heard it a million times in the last two decades. Where the social network for gamers, I actually still think there's a real opportunity to do that. So uh, maybe that would have been a, a better approach, and we could have still. Still made esports part of our strategy, but gone a bit broader.
0: That's all for our show. If you enjoyed this episode of Visionaries, you can find more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. But while you're there, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps other people find the show as well. Special thanks to Sammy Daig and Prem thottamkara for their help with this episode. We'll see you next week.